One of the greatest sports comebacks in history took place at the 1972 Munich Olympics. Dave Waddle was an American runner, and he got to the Olympics heavily favored to win the 800-meter race. Uh, He had tied the world record for the 800-meter just a couple of months prior. He had also won the NCAA championship for the 1,500-meter before he got to the Olympics. So he was walking into his event, highly favored to win it. So you can imagine his shock after the starting gun goes off and the runners burst out of their blocks that Dave Waddle fell to the back of the pack. Later on in an interview, he says this, There was a little bit of terror in the beginning because I found myself so far behind. I was eight to 10 meters behind and I thought, I'm just out of it. But slowly and surely, Waddle began to make his way past the runners in front of him. Eventually, he convinced himself that perhaps, just maybe, he might be able to get third place. He might be able to get a bronze medal. And as it turned out, he got a gold medal, three one-hundredths of a second between him and the man that he passed in order to get the gold medal. His victory gained him the nickname Waddle the Throttle. I think my nickname is closer to Eric the Easily Distracted and Discouraged. Endurance doesn't come naturally to me. If I'm not distracted by some other project or some other interest, I might give up when the going gets tough. Endurance is always hard, but I think that this message is especially important for you and I today because as Christians in the United States, we have been lulled into complacency. Our life is relatively easy. And even with maybe some mocking or some disdain that you face as a Christian from your family or maybe your neighbors or your workplace, our suffering as Christians is actually very minimal. Especially when you compare it against the suffering of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And I think at some level we know that, And we have convinced ourselves that if it gets really bad, well, that's when I'll step it up a notch. That's when I'll start pushing past the other runners. That's when I'll be strong. Well, friends, but that's foolish. Right now, many of us struggle with just basic obedience to the Lord. How do you think you're going to act and react when the going actually really gets tough. This call to endurance is essential. It was essential for the congregation that our preacher is writing to, a congregation that was facing real persecution, potentially even facing martyrdom in their immediate future. But it's also important for us to hear, for us who have not even yet begun to suffer like others have. In verse 1, the preacher uses the image of a race 
to help frame up this call to endure. And this is just one of many places in Scripture where athletic imagery is used to help us understand the Christian life. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy to train himself for godliness. That word train ends up coming into the English language as our word gymnasium. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul compares himself to a boxer, but he's not boxing somebody else, he's actually boxing himself. He's, He's beating his own body into submission so that he is not disqualified as a minister. He goes on to say in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that an athlete isn't crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And all of these images, all of these metaphors are given to us so that we can understand that our life as Christians is going to be one long event. It's going to be the event that takes up all of our life, that we are not here just to burst out of the blocks for a few yards before we can sit down and say, well, I'm glad that's over with. I can rest now. Many of us have probably had that experience, haven't we? We can look back at a time in our life where we were very passionate about our faith, where we were obedient to the Lord, and then we can see maybe where we're at right now. And we think, well, I ran well then, maybe that's enough for me, and now I can just rest a little bit. This imagery calls all of us to lace up our shoes, to run the race of the Christian life that God has put in front of us. As part of this race, there are things that we must not do, and then there are things that we should do. The things that we must not do begins here in verse 1. First, there are things that we need to get rid of. We we can't be carrying around extra weights. The weight that he calls us to lay aside. I, I think that this is something that we need to understand not as sinful, because he goes on to talk about the sins that are clinging to us. But he says to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily clings to us. These weights are morally neutral things in our life that still serve in some way as impediments to our running. I I want you to think, would Waddle, would Dave Waddle have been able to stretch that three hundredths of a second if he was carrying HEB bags full of groceries? Of course not. Would you be able to run your race if instead of the the shorts and the t-shirt you wore snow pants? Well, well, no. Now, there's nothing wrong with those groceries. There's nothing wrong with wearing snow pants. But to a particular time and place belong particular times and things. So what are the things maybe in your life that are serving as weights, that are slowing you down, that are weighing you down? Sometimes it's legitimate desires that we have. And we say it's not until I get that legitimate desire that I'm going to be willing to serve and follow God. I think particularly here in Austin and in a congregation like ours, I think the way that we use our money is something that we need to think about. 
the way that we use our time, using it selfishly rather than for the kingdom. These are the weights that aren't necessarily things that are sinful, but these are wisdom issues that we need to think about. How am I using the resources that God has given me? Are they slowing me down, or are they being used as things that help me run faster? We can't have the weight. We also need to give attention to the sin which clings so closely to us. The image here is sin as if it's like wet clothing while you're running and it's restricting your movements and you're not able to stretch out your legs and really get into stride because you're all bound up. Other versions talk about the sin that so easily entangles us as if sin is an obstacle on the track that you hit and all of a sudden your head over heels and you've got to pick yourself back up and keep on running. I appreciate so much how realistic our preacher is. He anticipates that there will be sin. That there are going to be issues that you have to address as sin. Not the weights, those morally neutral things, but real sin that you're going to continue to face as a Christian. But then he goes on to say, you can't tolerate it. Don't give it the attention that you did yesterday. As the English theologian John Owen famously wrote, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Not only do we have these things to get rid of, these weights and these sins, we also have some strength training to do as part of this race. Look at verse 12 with me. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The idea here is that we all come into a race not quite perfectly equipped. And then when we think about this as a community of racers, there are going to be some who are stronger who are called to come alongside those who are weaker. As part of the strength training, he goes on to tell us particular things that we need to do. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And in verse 16, No one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Have you noticed the interesting mix in these commands between what is personal and what is corporate? It is personal to strive for peace with, or it is corporate to strive for peace with everyone. To ensure that there are not relational dynamics that are at play that will make it difficult for you to link arms with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But then you get to this this command that, that no root of bitterness, verse 15, springs up. Well, root of bitterness is very personal, isn't it? But the author says, I'm not so worried necessarily about your heart. I'm worried about the damage that it will do in the community. I'm worried about the damage it will do in the body that many may become defiled. And certainly we have seen that, haven't we? 
how one person's frustration or anger or bitterness becomes a sort of seed that is spread through a community until it affects and infects everyone. Turn away from sexual immorality, one of the most commonly condemned sins in the New Testament. The idea here is that you're not running on your own. That this isn't your personal race. That what happens with you will affect those around you. And so you need to make sure that you're at the top of your strength, that you're in shape, ready to pursue the Christian life. So let me ask you, how are you doing with that? How are you doing in this race? Have you throttled up? Have you begun passing the competition? Or do you feel like you've been left behind at the back of the pack? In verse 2, our preacher tells us that the race isn't just about what we lay aside or what we must do to strengthen ourselves. The race must also include looking. Look at the end of verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What is he talking about here when he says, look to Jesus? Is it the kind of look that you and I do on the 35 as we quickly jerk over our shoulder to make sure we can make a quick move over? No, it's the look my golden retriever gives us when we're making dinner in the kitchen. If you have a dog, you know what I'm talking about. His eyes never leave us. He doesn't even blink. He's watching our every move. He is attuned to the smallest crumb that might fall off the kitchen counter. In the same way, you and I are called to look to Jesus because he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. What does it mean he's the founder and the perfecter? Well, he's the founder. He's the trailblazer. He has gone before you. In fact, in your Christian life, you can see his footprints where you are in turn going. He is leading the way. And that means that nothing you face is new. He has already endured it for you. He's also the perfecter. He is the finisher of our faith. Last week, Marcus walked us through some of the names in chapter 11, this great hall of faith and all of the different people that our preacher is calling on as evidence of those witnesses of God's faithfulness to them. And yet, even as he focused on Abraham, and you and I I heard that story of Abraham, we're reminded that Abraham wasn't perfect, was he? Nor was Moses or Rahab or Bathsheba. None of the people that are named in Hebrews chapter 11 are perfect. They all sinned. They all struggled. Only Jesus ran his race perfectly. And only Jesus can finish what he began in you. We must look to Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Listen to how one author puts this. When we suffer and complain... We ought to remember that Jesus did not complain. We get tired and give up, but Jesus did not. He persevered. 
and his priestly work ensures that God sees us as though we had suffered without complaint, as though we had endured the race without tiring or quitting. Jesus accomplished all of it for us and in our place. So when I complain about suffering, God sees Christ's joy. When I give up, God sees Christ's endurance. When my sin causes me to stumble, God sees a bloody cross and a life of perfect obedience. Because I am in Christ, I know that God will not condemn me. So I get up and I get back in the race. That's what it means to look to Jesus. Why this race? Why does God call us to run this race? Let me give you two quick reasons. The first is that the race is the means that God uses to put sin to death in our lives. Look at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I want you to imagine for a second that yesterday you were having a rough day and you called up a friend of yours just to confide in them, to talk to them a little bit about the struggles that you've had, the sin that has just been dominating your life, and you've come to them for some encouragement, and after they hear you, they say, well, did you die? Wait, what? I'm, I'm here telling you about all of this struggle that I'm having. Yeah, but did you die? Well, that's not very encouraging. That's not why I called you. But it's actually very encouraging. Because this section is phrased so that no one can say, yes, I did die in my struggle against that sin. Nobody can answer yes. Every one of us will have to answer no. I... I haven't yet died fighting that sin. And that's the whole point. The Christian life and the life of faith is something that's not going to be over until you take your last breath. And it's through this life of faith that God is putting sin to death in you. Don't be surprised by this. Don't be discouraged by it either. But be prepared for this life of faith. Be prepared for the hard work of mortification. It's a big theological word that means that we have to put to death not just our sinful actions, but also our fallen desires. The things that seem natural to us and yet are set against God's law. We need to put to sin, death in our, put sin to death in our lives, and the race is the means that God does, God uses to accomplish that. The second thing that the race does is it's the means that God uses to assure us that we are His, that we belong to Him. Our race, your race, my race, it will not always be through cheery country lanes. 
It won't always pass beautiful vistas that give you encouragements and fill you with awe. Sometimes you will find yourself in the middle of a swamp. Sometimes you will find yourself trudging through the desert. And it seems like you are all alone and there is no one there to help you or to support you. Our races will include hard providences, times of trial and struggle that may cause you to think that God has forgotten you or that God is punishing you. Our preacher says, don't think that way. When you go through those hard times, it's not God punishing you. It's God treating you like his own son. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now sadly, in our own families, and and particularly even in our evangelical culture, that word discipline generally connotes a negative thing. When we punish our kids, we are disciplining them. What I want you to think about more, though, is that discipline is the kind of strength training that athletes endure. They go through really hard things, things that they probably would not choose to go through in order to endure in their race, in order to have the strength and the the capacity to do the things that they need to do. It's a disciplined regiment that they have to participate in. That's the kind of language that I want you to grab hold of here. Our preacher says that you're sons. God is treating you as sons. Don't get hung up on that language, okay? Every woman in Christ is a son, and every man in Christ is a bride. Simply means that you belong to God. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He is your elder brother. And we now belong to God as adopted children. And in our life, not just through the good times, but even through the hard times where we must be disciplined to get through it, where we must dig deep, where we must find ourselves in the middle of the slog and push through the pain, even in those moments, God is remaking you into his image. A son looks like his father. Children act like their parents. Even our adopted kids grow up to resemble their parents in mannerisms and in patterns of speech. And one of the ways that God has determined to shape you into his image is through the hard and painful parts of your life. Your own failure. The sins that you've committed that hurt those around you. The death of those we love. Persecution. Sickness. God uses it for our good so that, in the words of verse 10, we might share in God's holiness. And in verse 11, so that we might bear in us the fruit of righteousness so that we might look like our Father. Honestly, I wish it wasn't this way. 
How come God just can't zap me and fill me up with righteousness? Why do I have to go through this race? I don't like running. I wish that I would never sin again and hurt those that I love. I wish that I would never be wounded by other people's sin. Why can't God just make us all perfect? Right at the moment that we're baptized, right at the moment that we put our faith in Christ, why do we have to go through this process? I don't know the answer to that question. In fact, there are very few why questions that I can confidently answer. Because the Bible doesn't give us the answers to those why questions. But this is what I do know. The God who made Adam from the dust and Eve from Adam's rib, he's the same God who used dirt and his own spit to make mud to put on a blind man's eyes so that he could see. And he's the same God who gives us water and gives us bread and wine, these tangible, physical things that he promises connect us to him. He uses earthly, physical things to accomplish his purposes. And that means that he's going to use your life. Not just the good parts, but also the painful parts to accomplish his purpose. I don't think we can see it when we're in the middle of the race. When the sweat's pouring down into our eyes, we can barely get one foot in front of the other. We have no idea where we're at on the track. But this exhortation from Hebrews 12 is designed to propel you forward, to help you keep running with confidence that in Christ you will reach the end. Let's pray. Father, so often we hear these exhortations and we want to throw up our hands in despair. We can't barely pick ourselves up off the ground to run, much less pick up our pace. And so, Father, show us Jesus and strengthen us with his own life so that in him we can find not just the hope that we have for the end of life, but the power that we need for this in-between time. As we sometimes with great strength and joy follow after you, and sometimes with halting steps, know that you are leading us forward. And that you will see us through to the end. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.